0: Uh, Dr. LeBecco received his uh, medical degree from Northeastern Ohio University's College of Medicines and his training in dermatology from the Cleveland Clinic. He's board certified by the American Academy of Dermatology. And uh, Dr. Uh, uh, LeBecco has uh, an interest in, uh, and currently is in private practice in Akron Skin Center as I recall. Yeah, Akron Skin Center and holds uh, staff appointments at Case Western uh, Reserve Medical Center work in conjunction with the Murdoch Family Center for Psoriasis. So please uh, enjoy your food and uh, help me welcome Dr. LeBecco.
1: Thank you so very much. The lunch smells. Fantastic. You guys are all torturing me as I'm up here. I appreciate that. Uh, it's the best way to you know, really make it through a, a meeting in a fairly reasonable amount of time is to leave me hungry up here. Uh, so hopefully things have been good for the morning conference thus far, finding it all worthwhile. Uh, special thank you on Veterans Day for those of you that have served. We appreciate it and thank you. I wanted to say that up front. Um, as I introduced, I am Dr. James LeBecco, dermatologist in private practice, also on appointment with uh, Case Western uh, University Medical School, and working with a group called the Murdoch Psoriasis uh, Center, which is a multi-million dollar endowed psoriasis research center, working toward helping develop further genomic studies as well as development of our um, understandings of comorbidities in psoriasis, and growth from that point. So I've worked with uh, a lot of great dermatologists along through the years that have really helped me grow in this field of dermatologists, as well as some very good PAs that I've worked with along through the uh, years. Uh, so we certainly appreciate that function and uh, benefits that we get out of our relations with our physician assistants as well. So thank you from the, from the podium this morning. So start with, this is a talk today on the treatment of moderate to severe psoriasis, and we're gonna run through some basic background, some basic science and treatment of psoriasis, as well as some of the developments with some of our newest medications in the market right now, particularly looking at Stelara, or Eustakinumab as it's known. Uh, as we know, this is a promotional activity. This is a product theater, so these are the FDA-approved slides. We're going to stay in primarily to approved uses of the product today, uh, and I appreciate them bringing me down to help share some of the information that we have about a you know, fantastically developing product that we have in the treatment of psoriasis today. As a bit of housekeeping up front, there is a pre- and post-test uh, in your product information. The slides that we're going to be going through today are actually in the booklet there. Um, So if everybody gets a chance to fill out the pre-program and post-program, just help us better assess and develop these programs to provide more meaningful and useful information and any helpful critiques that you have, and it would be greatly appreciated today. So thank you for doing that. You do have the audience response keypads, as we mentioned. We'll be using those for some multiple choice questions later on. They don't do anything exciting like answer. They're not an iPhone. They, won't, uh, they don't have any fun apps on them. They only work to answer these few questions, so you don't need to bring them home with you. I promise they're not that fun. Uh, and we'll collect those uh, brochures as we get to the end. So to begin with, we're going to focus primarily on our treatment options for managing moderate and severe plaque psoriasis talking about the scenarios and helping to develop some goals as to when we can best use these treatment options in our psoriatic patients today in 2010 as we stand in the market today. As we know to begin with, psoriasis is to say the least common. Seven, eight million Americans out there with psoriasis, uh, about a quarter of them with moderate and severe psoriasis. And I don't know about your practices, but I don't have a, quarter of, a you know, quarter of those patients in my office right now, which means they're out there. A lot of these patients are lost. They've been frustrated with our therapies that haven't done enough for them. Uh, we haven't had enough good treatments through the years, and they sort of feel lost. So I really think of it as part of our job here to help find our psoriatic patients, provide adequate care, bring them back into the fold of therapy, helping to improve their disease state and overall improve their lives. We certainly think of it as a severe disease because it involves not just the skin, but also as a systemic disease. It's a systemic inflammatory process. And you think back just even a decade ago, psoriasis was, was a skin disease, not much more. There was no real talk of the immune system as part of this. It wasn't until we started developing transplant medications and seeing transplant patients with psoriasis that we really started to appreciate the immune impact of disease. And that's really changed the whole therapeutic ladder from a topical-based therapy to systemic-based therapy from an anti-proliferative, slowing down the skin cell growth and turning it into an inflammation control instead. So there's been a complete shift in the understanding of treating psoriasis. So we have to think of this as a systemic disease, much like everything else that we do, in treating things in dermatology. It's more than just the skin disease quite often. So even though you can have wide surface areas, some people aren't terribly infected. But we can't forget our people who have small areas of very severe disease, scalp psoriasis that just can't be controlled, severe facial psoriasis, palm and soul disease that keeps people on disability. And I can think of, you know, a dozen people that have been on long-term disability because of hand and foot disease. They were able to clear and put back to work by our current generation of therapy. Now I've had people that aren't terribly happy about that. They come in you know, six months after we get them cleared up and they want me to re-sign on their disability paperwork and I say, sorry, you're not disabled anymore. Uh, it's nice to be able to say, but it doesn't always make all the patients happily, happy, thankfully. And we look at this, a good 39% of patients will have lesions that involve the palms and soles. That's a big deal for a lot of people. If you have a hard time walking, if you can't shake someone's hand, if you have a customer sales job and you can't greet customers as they come in, it's a problematic thing in your life. And we have to think of a lot of these impacts and quality of life, impact on day-to-day life, and it's an important piece to look at. And I assess regularly with my patients when they come into my office and I do a fair bit of psoriasis. We dedicate a fair portion of every visit into how are you doing with your disease? Where is this impacting your life? And I tend to see my patients on a quarterly basis. And at least one of those visits every year is gonna be based primarily on psychological impacts of disease. Yeah, no, it's bad. You know, when you weren't treated and you weren't allowed to, you know, try on clothes or you weren't allowed to use the pool. Remember when I had to write that note for you? Uh, When people we try to keep them on therapy, those baseline photos to uh, help remind them of where they were at with disease can be very useful for them. Uh, So we have to always think about the quality of life when we work with our psoriasis patients beyond it being just the physical impact of disease. Back in the past, we've had. You know, some relatively limited treatment options, and we're at a point now where it's exciting to be treating psoriasis because we have so many good treatment options available. And you look at these numbers, seventy eight percent of patients in a National psoriasis Foundation's uh, survey were frustrated with their treatments. Not terribly fantastic numbers to see. 32% felt the treatments weren't aggressive enough, and this was back you know, a decade ago when we didn't have as many good treatment options as we have today in treating psoriasis, and still a third of people not satisfied with the level of aggressive therapy provided for them. 2006, 30%, 29% of patients spent at least 30 minutes of their day applying topicals. of people frustrated with their therapy. One of the things I always do with my residents when they first start working with me is everybody gets a tube of plain white petrolatum. And I say, I want you to cover both forearms in this twice a day for the next week. I have yet to ever have anybody finish that challenge. So when you're thinking you're spending 30 minutes, quarter of people have moderate to severe disease, 5%, 10%, 20%, 30 40%, 50%, 60% body surface involvement. And a quarter of people said they spend an hour or more caring for their psoriasis every day. I don't know about your days, I don't have an hour to spare right now in my life to think about it. And you know, routinely people answer back, well, if I had psoriasis, I would be willing to put that up and down my forearm every day. Really? Our numbers don't bear that out. European study, 50% felt that the time-consuming nature of therapy was the most troublesome aspect about their disease. Time, time, the one thing we can't ever get enough. My teenage patients that we take care of, if I can't text message them a cure in three seconds, they're not happy with my acne therapy. Um, A third of patients feeling their treatment was ineffective. We want more than ineffective. We want to be spending less than an hour a day taking care of our psoriasis. And we certainly have, you know, i don't get me wrong, topicals are still always part of what we do. And I really try to always focus on tailoring the vehicles to the patient as much as possible. Our topicals, the vitamin Ds, steroids, retinoids, classic things like our acetretin, methotrexate, cyclosporin, light therapy. And I tell you, I do less and less light as we go along. I have less use for it as we go along with the advent of the biologics. And that's a term that we'll use here, meaning some of the injectable medications we use in treating psoriasis. I don't like this term necessarily with my patients when I'm talking with them, however. I don't use the word biologic with my patient. I just say we have another therapy to treat your psoriasis. I don't feel a need to stigmatize that with my patients that "Hmm, we can put you on a pill, we can do this, or I can put you on a biologic. And all of a sudden, the radar bells are ringing and saying, well, why is that different? Well, why is it different? It's a categorization. You know, we don't talk about, you know, antimetabolites. We don't talk about, you know, all these other words. So why should we use it differently when we're talking about a biologic? It's a term that's grown in the modern era. But I still talk to my patients about, hey, I have something that's going to work to treat your psoriasis. This is what we have to do. This is what we're going to monitor, and this is what we expect. And I keep it very simple with them from that point. of patients with severe disease are getting topical therapy only. Think about that, 10% of your body or more, and you're going to apply a topical to that, and we're telling them to do it usually twice a day. Unless you're writing at least two pounds per month, 32, you know, 1,000 grams of topical, you're not covering a severe patient adequately per month. And I don't think I've ever written a thousand grams of a topical. If you do the math on these, these severe patients, it's not possible to cover these areas. So that takes us to one of the newest advents of where we're at, going beyond these areas that we have to cover. And that takes us to ustekinumab, a human monoclonal antibody. This is a human protein that we use in treating psoriasis at this point, among other things that are coming down the line. This is a protein that binds to the P40 found on both IL-12, interleukin-12, and interleukin-23. Those limit that activity from these cytokines. That limits the cell surface interaction, helping to control inflammation, and improving psoriasis. Why IL-12 and IL-23? Why two different molecules we're attacking with P40? P40 is a common subunit between interleukin-12 and 23. They both have, they're dimeric, they have two components, P40 plus P35 for IL-12, P19 and P40 for IL-23. So they share that common subunit between the two molecules and that's why we talk about this molecule as being an IL-12-23 inhibitor. So what does that do? Well, we have a few key components that we see here. Um, By blocking IL-12, we limit Th1 cell line differentiation, which is a pro-inflammatory primarily through interferon and TNF-alpha, causing skin plaque thickening and increased inflammation. But also by going to the IL-23, we get into the more newly described pathway of Th17, uh, which is a very important regulatory cascade through an inflammatory cascade through the psoriatic pathway and a lot of skin disease it's turning out to be quite honestly. So by blocking this Th17 cell differentiation, we limit as well as the uh, interferon and TNF-alpha from the IL-12, also IL-22 and IL-17. These are also involved with inflammation and skin plaques where in previous generations, we've been focusing a lot on TNF-alpha directly sort of leaving that unopposed action of interferon, the IL-17, IL-22, by backing a little bit up the pathway here with ustekinumab, we're getting a little bit more control of the entire inflammatory cascade. Uh, And that may be part of the reason why we're seeing a lot of the response that we're seeing. And this video helps explain that.
0: Psoriasis is a chronic inflammatory skin disease. The development of this disease is now believed to result from the activity of T cells and their secreted products, which leads to excessive keratinocyte production, new blood vessel growth, and dilatation of existing blood vessels. In psoriasis, the T cells involved are affected by cytokines, small soluble proteins, that act as messengers between cells, inducing responses by binding to specific receptors. Studies suggest that abnormal regulation of two cytokines in particular, interleukins 12 and 23, may play a key role in psoriatic inflammation. Both IL-12 and IL-23 are immunoregulatory cytokines secreted by dendritic cells that help coordinate a cascade of reactions, leading to an immune response. IL-12 and IL-23 share a common subunit, P40. IL-12 binds to two chain receptor complexes that are expressed on the surface of T cells and natural killer, or NK cells. Upon binding to its receptor, IL-12 promotes NK cell activation and drives CD4 positive T cells towards a T helper one or th1 phenotype th1 and NK cells secrete a characteristic set of pro-inflammatory cytokines most notably interferon gamma interferon gamma has long been thought to contribute to psoriasis pathology IL-23 also binds to a two chain receptor complex on the T cell surface IL-23 stimulates the activation of T cells towards a TH-17 phenotype. TH-17 cells express a characteristic set of cytokines, including IL-17, and are increasingly appreciated as contributors to the hyperproliferation of abnormal skin cells characteristic of psoriasis. Because the P-40 subunit is shared between IL-12 and IL-23, P-40 has been called a master switch and provides a novel therapeutic target in plaque-type psoriasis. Ustekinumab is a fully human monoclonal antibody that binds with high affinity to the P40 subunit found on both IL-12 and IL-23. When ustekinumab binds to IL-12 or IL-23, these interleukins are blocked from receptor interactions that would lead to activation of T-cells or NK cells and subsequent events that contribute to psoriatic plaque formation. Through this mechanism of action, ustekinumab is thought to interrupt biologic events that are central to psoriasis pathology.
1: So it puts it relatively, you know, simple terms for the inflammatory cascade, but it seems like every time we understand a bit more of this pathway, it becomes all the more important that we understand the inflammatory regulation in treating psoriasis. Now, the important thing of that is it's not so much important for the patient interaction as it is our understanding of the pathway and mechanisms of disease. Uh, As I said, this is a piece that I discuss among colleagues but not necessarily among patients. I don't think that's a discussion that necessarily makes a lot of people you know, happy to have in the room. People, you know, patients confused about why we're talking about these things in general, and they've never had any doctor talk to them about it before. And I've seen these discussions happen in the room sometimes. and. Uh Never quite sure how that comes to be with these, but uh, this is very simply, as I talk to my patients with, treatment for psoriasis, chronic plaque psoriasis, 18 or older, who are candidates for phototherapy or systemic therapy. I like this indication from the FDA because it doesn't say for those that are not candidates for any other therapy, uh, doesn't say for people who have failed other therapy, merely for somebody who has moderate or severe psoriasis, three or 5% body surface or more, three or five depending on whose definition you use say five percent or more uh, who are systemic candidates and that's pretty easy to understand definitions for patients there are two doses when treating stellar those that for under 100 kilograms or 220 pounds those over 220 pounds and different areas of the country those numbers may vary we have a lot of that 100 kilogram dose used in my office Um, and they're getting 90 milligrams every 12 weeks after the initial baseline dose, and a dose four weeks thereafter. So if we look back to simplicity of therapy, the biggest complaint that we saw from both those uh, U.S. and European studies, people complaining the most frustrating part of their therapy was time. You know, we don't have a cure for psoriasis, but when you're doing an injection in the office, say, see you a month later, and I'm not gonna see you back until the seasons change. I'm gonna see you back in three months. Doesn't get much easier than that when it comes to treating patients that's happy customers when they come back in. These are people that tell their psoriasis friends to come back in. So we do have those two doses, 45 or 90 milligrams, um, and we base that based on some information we're gonna get to in the efficacy in just a few minutes. Um, It's provided as a pre-filled syringe now. There were vials. Those that haven't used it in a little while, there's now pre-filled syringes. Uh, Very simple to use with our patients, and that's done in the office, and the reason being, I wanna see my patients quarterly anyway so they need to come in for their visit. What better reason to make sure they're coming in and actually getting therapy, actually doing therapy, because as we know, none of our patients would ever miss a dose of any of their medications, right? Um, oh, wait, yes. Uh, so you know you have them in the office. You know you're monitoring them for side effects. You know you're monitoring them for efficacy. And we're you know, addressing those social issues, psycho-issues, the uh, physical issues with the disease as well. Um, so the pivotal information, how do we determine efficacy, great. We have a medication. We know we have patients that need it. How do we use it now? This study was done and through two different groups, Phoenix One and Phoenix Two, two very large studies that were the critical pieces in getting information and approval of this medication. There were doses at 45 milligrams, 90 milligrams, and then a placebo control group for the first 12 weeks that then rolled onto therapy, much as we've done with every other biologic that we use in treating psoriasis right now, very sort of standard way of doing these things. Uh, so you can see here at, the, at baseline, they got a dose at week zero at baseline, dose a month later, and then every three months thereafter. So these were people that were over 18, obviously, with chronic plaque psoriasis that was stable, with reasonable amount of disease. PASI scores or severity greater than 12 and at least 10% body surface area. So these were relatively severe patients that went into the trial. They couldn't have been currently on a biologication, they had to um, wash out of those time periods, no topicals within the last two weeks. So this is not necessarily a real world where we'd often still have them using topicals on active areas, this is drug and drug alone. Uh, Interestingly, they were allowed if they had uh, to have, if they were allowed, if they had inactive chronic latent tuberculosis. So if you had active TB, you were excluded, but this is a place where they actually allowed people who had latent tuberculosis into the trial. How about going looking for trouble and somehow they've managed to avoid it. It's really good. You know, most studies would exclude those patients. This actually was allowed to include latent tuberculosis if they were undergoing appropriate therapy for latent TB, such as INH therapy. Uh, nobody if they had any active malignancies or infections at present. So fairly typical study population, mostly male, around 46 years of age. And you can see the three columns here, very equally matched groups of patients in age, weight, uh, sex, all very simple. You know, the um, psoriasis duration was a little bit lower in the 45 milligram group, but fairly typical. Um, and body surface area, PASI scores, and they actually still had three some percent in each category that had latent TB allowed in the trial. These are people that have been through a lot of therapies, so these are people that were certainly treatment failures in the past, full, you know, roughly two-thirds had had phototherapy. Over half had been on conventional systemics, and almost half had been on a biologic previously, so this is not the easiest to treat population when we see these numbers. And as with all good studies, you always throw your patients on there that you've had the most trouble with. You never seem to ever get the easy patients in clinical trials. So what happened? Just 12 weeks in, and I don't necessarily like 12-week data, but it's what the FDA allows primarily for marketing, so that's always one of the main data points that you'll see uh, advertised. I know my psoriasis patients are going to have it for more than 12 weeks, but we're going to do 12-week data and 28- and 40-week data and all the way out to week 72 that we're going to see here. Um, But just 12 weeks in, remember this is baseline, a dose a month later. And now they're being evaluated eight weeks after that, and they haven't even had another dose yet at this point. So this was just that first month of therapy. And we're seeing 86% of people had PASI 50 scores, so a 50% reduction in that PASI score, 66% with PASI 75, and over uh, 30%, 40% that had PASI 90s, and even in Phoenix T, you see crossing the 50% PASI 90 barrier in just 12 weeks. These are phenomenal numbers for improving psoriasis when you compare these back. This is great improvement for patients. Looking at it a different way, the global assessment, physician global assessment, and saying are these people clear or having minimal disease, maybe a bit of pink left, maybe a small bit of scale left, not very much that you would notice, and you're getting over 60 to 70% of people are clear or almost clear just 12 weeks in. What happens if we go on longer, though? If we look at this with weight 12 weeks in, under 100 kilos, under 100 kilos. And we start to see why there's two doses for this. That under 100 kilo category didn't really seem to matter which dose you're on. They both did about the same. And there's some a little bit higher and some a little bit lower in that, but on a whole there wasn't a big differentiator. But when we see that, especially in Phoenix too, those over 100 kilogram patients, you're seeing a, you know, over a 20 point spread whenever they were on the higher dose. And there we get that separate dose for those heavier patients. It's nice to have a dose adjustable medication for our heavier patients, instead of expecting the same dose for my 400-pound patients or my 95-pound patients. Different spectrum of activity. We do a lot of weight-based dose medicines, and it's nice to be able to do that in psoriasis. So what happened during that placebo-controlled period as we went along? We see over 600 people treated 12 weeks in at this point, uh, about half people had some sort of adverse event. Serious adverse events were very low and equal, basically, across the placebo and treatment arms at 1.5% and 1.4% for the higher dose. Um, less than 2% needed to be discontinued in the treatment arms, higher in the placebo, actually. Uh, and what was the most common? Nasopharyngitis, upper respiratory tract infections, headaches, fatigue, more common placebo-like complaints that we see, so I'm not surprised to not see a big difference across here. There was a little bit more headache, a little bit more fatigue, but nothing that really jumps that highly off the page as we see these numbers. Infections of all type, uh, relatively equal across the board, slightly higher in the 45 milligram dose at 25% with all types of infection, zero serious infection in the low dose, three infections in the higher dose, and three in the placebo arm. So again, not much of a signal toward infection looking at 12-week data. This is reassuring to me as I prescribe for my patients to see numbers like this. Uh, One noncutaneous cancer in both the placebo and in the high dose. Um, I'm sorry, cutaneous cancers, excuse me, one non-cutaneous and just the placebo arm. And cardiovascular events, there was one um, arrhythmia in the low-dose as well as a, um, a cardiovascular event in the high-dose as well, and that was counted as stroke. As we went along with these, the high-dose patients, the low-dose patients continued on. The placebo patients then went on to medications and were enrolled at this point for the second study period going on through week 28 now, a little bit longer treatment period. And as we went along longer, as we hope our patients are at this point, as we'd expect them to do, they do better. So looking at 12 week, maybe not even the most fair assessment. We now move those PASI 75 responses up into the 70 to 80% range. And again, hovering around 50% of people with a PASI 90 or more. Fantastic numbers to see out of our therapeutic options in treating psoriasis. And again, we see that weight-based separation for our over 100-kilogram patients, You know, seeing that about 20-point spread in both arms of the trial for the higher dose with our 100-kilo-plus uh, uh, patients. So this took us all the way out to week 40. We saw those enrollment. The people that rolled over went on to the baseline dose four weeks later, and then every 12 weeks. So we're looking at now all the way out to 40 week assessments. And we see those people that rolled over uh, from placebo and on the treatment catch up very quickly onto where the patients that are maintaining a nice even level keel uh, for the high treatment arm and low treatment arm. And interestingly, we were seeing 24 and 40 week data. You're really seeing the real peak in there is around 32 and 36 weeks. So the very highest numbers aren't even represented in this data as we see them. Uh, Very interesting numbers to see this as we go along. So then with all good clinical trials, what do we do? You take away the medicine, just when people are doing well. So people that were responders at these uh, dose periods, if they're PASI 75 or higher, they were randomized to either stay on medication, or go onto a placebo and monitor what happens as you stop using the medication and what happens whenever you go back onto medication again. Those that had PASI-75 or less actually went into a separate subset and there's some poster information available on this if you wanted to request on what happens if you took those patients to every eight week dosing, but not part of what we're covering here right now. So looking at these numbers, PASI-75, people that stayed on medication You see in the high bars, they maintain a very even clinical response all the way out to week 76. Very high numbers still maintaining PASI 75 and the high dose arm, you're looking at 80, 90, 87, 91% even as they maintain. So we don't see a lot of drop off as we went along through time. So people stayed pretty clear as they stayed on medicine all the way out through week 76. The placebo treated patients, as you would expect, you take away the medication they lost their clearance. So we see week 52, you're down to 64. Week 64, you're down to 29. 76, down to 20% of people maintaining, still 20% maintaining PASI 75, which is fairly impressive that they haven't had medicine in half a year at this point. Still doing well. So looking at these numbers in aggregate, people that stayed on therapy all the way to week 76, PASI 50's of 96%, PASI 75's of 84%. You know, think back 10, 15 years ago, I didn't think we'd ever seen numbers like this in treating psoriasis. It's absolutely astounding to be at this point that we can offer these kind of therapies for our patients getting this kind of clearance available. So what happened is we went on all the way through this placebo phase. So we now have some placebo comparison information, people that are off medication versus people on medication again, all the way from week 40 to 76. Again, smaller numbers at this point, not as many people out this far into the trial. We still had about two thirds of people with some adverse event, only 3% on the placebo with a serious adverse event and 0.6% on people actually had stayed on therapy. So our adverse events rates stayed very low while people were on therapy. Again, very reassuring to me as somebody who's putting my name at the bottom of the prescriptions. Most common again, same complaints, upper respiratory tract infections, nasopharyngitis, gastroenteritis, and headache, slightly higher in the treatment arms uh, versus the uh, placebo arm, uh, but minimal difference between those two, accepting a bit more of the headache. Infection numbers, almost identical, 66 and 69, very similar, serious infections, actually more common in the placebo arm. Cutaneous cancers remain low. Noncutaneous cancers, again, more in the placebo arm. No cardiovascular events at all during this whole stage. And we certainly worry about those in our psoriasis patients with their underlying comorbidities, and it's a continual growing topic, as I'm sure you've read in every bit of journal out recently, ever since sort of this all grew out of Dr. Gelfin's work, looking at the high rates of cardiovascular events in psoriasis patients. So the most common things that we saw in nasopharyngitis, upper respiratory tract infection, headache. It's a relatively simple conversation to have with my patients as we're discussing risk with therapy. Uh, There was one interesting event that occurred that we'll get to in a second called a reversible posterior leukoencephalopathy syndrome. This is not infectious. This is not PML. This is not what happened with Raptiva a few years ago. Different process, not infectious. No active tuberculosis, uh, despite these people with latent TB being allowed into the trial. I still want to know who made that decision. I, just, I don't think if I'd put that into a clinical trial, it's just asking for trouble, but they did okay. Uh, and thankfully, actually very few, and I can say personally, have had no significant problem, actually no problem with injection site reactions, no redness swelling at injection sites that we've had, and I'm very pleased to say that. So now we move into a little bit of the audience response portion at this point. Looking at our um, plaque psoriasis, first patient. Real world scenario, 44 year old guy, fairly typical. He's not that heavy, only a body mass index of 25.9, certainly a little bit light for an average psoriasis patient at only 191 pounds. Uh, He's had four years of psoriasis, about 10% of his body surface area measured by hands, relatively quick and easy assessment that I do in my office. I generally measure hand area. I don't calculate PASI scores on my patients. It's not a real-world measuring tool unless you're really into punishing yourself or your staff, but to uh, simply measure hands is very simple when you're in the office. He's a package driver, uh, works for one of the delivery companies, and this is a guy that misses work often. On average, psoriasis patients miss at least one day per month of work because of their disease that they attribute directly. Psoriatic arthritis patients miss a week, about one day a week, excuse me, whenever they have psoriatic arthritis. So this is a disease that has a high economic impact on the workforce whenever you look at the numbers. So this is a guy that misses work because of his disease. He's been on a lot of topicals, oral, systemic medications as well. Topical treatments, only mild improvement, wasn't happy with the improvement, which is not an unusual scenario when you have 10% of your body covered with disease. He'd been on some continuous orals with some minimal improvement. He still was not happy about the improvement that he had at this point, and he wanted to know where can he go next. So that becomes a good question. If Ted is in your office, where do you go next? You can punch into the answers on your uh, audience response keypad there, and we'll see what the audience thinks of our options here. Nice, nice addition. Looks like most of our answers have trickled in at this point. And yeah, I agree. I think, you know, welcome to the uh, almost next decade in therapy now at this point. It's time to evaluate the patient for a biologic therapy. And I can certainly see other tradi- uh, traditional systemic agents are a reasonable consideration if he's been on cyclosporin, knowing that we can't stay there for the long term. I like cyclosporine, don't get me wrong, and I use a fair bit of methotrexate. Uh, But we're looking at uh, some dose-limiting toxicities with those that breed us into the biologic therapy as an option. So what would prompt to consider a biologic in this case? For those of you that felt that a biologic was appropriate, which of these factors weigh into your decision-making process? It's time to move on, but who just doesn't want to listen anymore, right? Oops, no, we lost him there. There we go, 91%. Now, obviously, the medical history is, you know, certainly something we want to look at with our patients. And he doesn't have anything particularly outstanding, so, you know, reasonable consideration. Treatment of efficacy. Somebody comes to my office and said, I've always done fantastic with this. I've just been off for a while. I want to go back. Absolutely a consideration. I, You consideration. Know, anything that's ever worked for any patient in dermatology, I don't knock it. Whatever works for you, we try to work with. Um, disease severity absolutely should be critical in the decision-making process. Um, when you actually ask people to, people have done some very interesting studies on this and having people sketch out what they consider moderate or severe psoriasis on a body diagram. Often people don't start to call it severe until it's 30 or 40% body surface area. And yet by our American Academy of Dermatology National Psoriasis Foundation guidelines, you know, 10% is a severe patient. So often greatly underestimating the severity and impact of disease on the patient population. So, you know, sort of really take a step back and it helps to measure those actual areas in your patients sometime and go, You know, you really probably are a candidate, and some people really surprise me. I don't think they have that much until I really measure out their numbers and you see how much more they're actually involved. Any reasons that you wouldn't see from his history thus far, that he wouldn't be a candidate for a biologic therapy? that one in a while, (laughs) to pull that out. Um, So any reasons not to, well, none of the above. So the patient's medical history, not a whole lot standing out there that wouldn't make him a candidate for a biologic therapy. Um, Previous treatment efficacy is obviously gonna weigh in significantly here because he was not happy with what he's done thus far. Uh, Disease severity, obviously an issue uh, as well because he has relatively severe disease, he's missing work, he has a limitation in his function and certainly in his happiness because of it. So is this somebody that we could use Stolara in? Here's a little song I wrote. might want to sing it. I hope I'm not supposed to dance. Don't worry. Be happy. Alright, let's see who passed the test Every here. Alright, ninety four percent of you think so, yes. Five percent of you unsure, haven't used it, or don't do that much psoriasis. one uh, percent of you now sayers, yeah, there's always somebody. Can't please them all, right? Uh so in follow-ups, so this guy's 16 weeks in, he's just receiving his third dose at this point. He's getting the low dose, even 191 pounder, he still gets the low dose, 45 milligrams. He's more than 75% improved in PASI score. Clear, or almost clear. He did have one upper respiratory tract infection, and when the infection numbers shake out in these, it doesn't really seem to be correlating early or late in my experience, or in the day that I've seen. Uh, as to whether it occurs early or late. You know, some people thinking you could give that dose, you'd expect more problems right up front, but we're not seeing that pattern that appears. Uh, 28 weeks in, he's now getting his fourth dose. He's continuing to show improvement. Much of like we saw in the earlier data, the longer we stay on, the better we do with therapy. And the big issue with our psoriasis patients, is always, is keeping people on therapy, regardless of which medication we're using. Um, it's really frightful when you go looking for the data at how often your prescriptions aren't filled. There are refills you think should be happening, aren't happening, so a piece that definitely pay attention in our psoriasis patients in addition to everything else that we deal with in dermatology. 76 weeks in, he's cruising along, year and a half in at this point, eight doses in, continuing to show improvement with his skin. So you can see a lot of redness at baseline, widespread plaques across the legs, you know, almost clear at week 12 and a year in. That's a happy guy. That's a happy wife at home with him that's not sweeping scales out of the bed every day. Um, you, know, you know you're know, you officially in a dermatology office when you have a dustbuster in the office, right? And no other specialty has their own dustbusters. You're a dermatologist. Uh, another patient, Carly. She's a 34-year-old, relatively significant disease. This is not a happy patient uh, with the amount of area that she has involved. Uh, 34 years old, 5'8", 195, a little bit higher body mass index at 29%. 20 years of disease, so Shinsu is a teenager. She's been ostracized for a long time, and she's feeling it now with 30% of her body involved, and she's a jewelry designer. She has to travel a lot. Uh, she feels uh, you know, very difficult to work with people with her hands exposed like that with the degree of involvement that she has. This is where really getting into that impact on life. You know, I have a few uh, surgeons that just have hand-only disease and they can't do cardiothoracic surgery with just palma plantar disease, so we have them on very aggressive therapy despite limited areas of involvement. This poor woman unfortunately has widespread involvement, so she's very concerned about this. She's been through her topicals, and it's not really practical for the area. Maybe the hands, maybe the elbows, somewhere that she's working with, those are people we have focused their topicals on the most prominent areas, but they need systemic therapy. Uh, Originally showed some improvement with that, um, but she's continuing to flare. She wants other options. Where would you go next with a patient like this? You get an audience response.
2: You're pushing I came me, go, huh? <laughs> Cause that's my plans, 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 plans. I'm wearing all my favorite brands, 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 brands. Give me some space for both my hands, 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 hands. You, you, it go.
1: All right, so we're gonna explore some biologics for this patient, it did, it just went on and on. Um, About 12% would go with a traditional systemic therapy as an option, absolutely appropriate, and unfortunately sometimes we're handcuffed to that by depending on your region of the country. Some areas you can write a biologic, no problem, you can start patients out. Uh, Other areas, you're going to have to go through traditional systemic therapy. So we're still unfortunately in a day and age at this point where that is part of the decision-making process. I am never afraid to go to bat with an insurance company when somebody needs a therapy and they say no. Um, The medical directors unfortunately know my voice anymore whenever it comes to getting somebody a therapy that I really want them to have because of their disease. Uh, I'm not afraid to lean on them and get somebody onto a therapy I think is appropriate for them. Uh, especially when we look at a lot of the requirements, some of the preferred medications listed, if you look at the package insert, it says only when other available therapies have failed. So we have medications now that don't have a prerequisite, say, of failed other therapies, it just says as appropriate to treat with systemic therapy. And they're asking us to go against what the FDA has recommended often. I'm not afraid to take up that fight sometimes. Would you consider appropriate for Stelara? Is this somebody you could use Stelara on?
2: Everyone
0: says you're amazing. Amazing. Amazing.
1: Amazing. 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 All right, good. A couple of nice sayers again. Thank you, DJ. Uh, Good candidate for Stolar? Absolutely. This is somebody that would be a great candidate for Stolar at this point. uh, It's certainly reasonable to move on at this point when somebody's failing onto other therapies. Uh, Remembering that these people have often failed other therapies prior. You know, back to the enrollment data that we saw. Two thirds had been on phototherapy prior. Over half with conventional systemics and a good 40 some percent had already been on biologics. So despite failures of therapy, we can certainly get excellent response in this poll of patients that may be worse than the average person walking in your office sometimes. Again, the exclusion and inclusion criteria, as we talked about, moderate severe disease actually in this case, severe for the clinical trials, and people who hadn't had cancer previously, including the latent TB that have been treated. So what happened? Put her on therapy, baseline, one month. See so her back every three months. Simple for somebody who travels a lot as a jewelry designer. Make that appointment in your office, come in, get your injection, they're on their way. Uh, pretty simple to do. Improvement a year out, did you see? Fantastic maintenance of clearance. This is a much happier patient that's missing a lot less work, that's a lot more productive, a lot more confident in what they're doing. Uh, this is part of that you know, social visit that I do every so often with my patients, is you'll catch a 20-some year old every once in. I remember I gave a patient education talk once, and uh, one guy waited to the very end of the talk and came up and said, you know, very sheepish, says, do you know of any dating websites for psoriasis patients? I'm so afraid to ask somebody out because they're gonna see my skin. Yeah, it looks like. I don't have her numbers, unfortunately, be able to tell you. The question is whether she's lost weight. I can't say for sure, but it does look like it by the photo. Some of my patients I've been successful on. I mean, I don't know whether it's a psychological factor, you know, they're able to do something else with their appearance with their, their and everything. To, you know, and we certainly see, you know, it's a whole other lecture. I could give you a couple hours on that alone and the inflammatory cascade and the relationship between obesity, inflammation, inflammation, and obesity. Uh, it's a whole growing world of psoriatic therapy. And that's actually part of a lecture I give at the American Academy of Dermatology. I have a Sunday session that we do nothing but the comorbidities, and that's a large portion of it. We could cover a lot of detail with that. Um, but it is a you know, growing field of evidence right now. One last patient we'll go through here. 47-year-old, heavier patient, 280 pounds. This was somebody that would move into that 90 milligram dose over 100 kilos. High body mass index, 38%. 12 years of plaque 20% over those 12 years. Primarily trunk and buttocks, he's an accountant. Uh so somebody actually worry. And some have people that have heavy backside involvement that are really bothered if they have a job, they sit a lot. You know, they bleed through their clothes, their chairs are ruined at work, they only have leather chairs, they don't have fabric chairs if you ask them about this. i uh, would be surprised the stories you get out of patients when you go looking for this sometimes. Uh, he's concerned about safety. His wife says go check. Who's ever had, you know, a patient, you know, in the office because their wife made them come, right? I mean, it's, I think that's every male that makes it into my office. Um, So he's been on oral systemics, he's been on UVB, oral systemic have only provided uh, fair clinical improvement, he's not satisfied with his improvement thus far, and he's been reading about the internet, he's worried about infection, he's worried about malignancy and the numbers that appear out of things, uh, because we know it's really exciting in these days. It seems like if you can find one patient who has one cancer, we report on it in uh, the journals right now. Uh, It's a lot less exciting to talk about some of our older medications when these things happen. So if you were treating Tom, where do you go next? Upper therapy doesn't land her in a bad romance. That would be no good, but yeah, absolutely. This is somebody who's definitely a candidate for systemic therapy, other than what she's done. She's been on oral, she's been on light. It's time to move on to the biologic world, and that's certainly well within the the confines of our treatment paradigms. Our treatment flow sheet is provided by the National Psoriasis Foundation and the American Academy of Dermatology right now. Would Tom be a candidate for Stellara? We got some fast fingers out there. Yeah, absolutely would be a candidate for somebody who's failed other therapies previously. You know, it's certainly in the biologic realm, whether it's a TNF alpha inhibitor or an IL-12 inhibitor. We certainly have our options out there and you know it's the Maybe the big problem in 2010, we have a lot of great options in treating our patients. And it's a as I sort of say to my patients that come in for the first time, it's a fantastic time to have psoriasis. If there is or ever is a good time, now's a good time. We finally have good things we can go on with. So this guy was worried about his safety. What do we have to worry about our safety information? Certainly infection. Anytime you're on any immune suppressing medication of any degree, infection is absolutely a risk. It occurs with our traditional agents and our current agents. It occurs across the board, and it's something to be fully fair and honest in discussing about. We've seen certainly bacterial infections, fungal infections, viral infections, primarily cellulitis, diverticulitis, osteomyelitis, gastroenteritis, pneumonia, and urinary tract infections. Relatively common things you see across the board, but interestingly, when you look at the numbers, there's low numbers of each of these. There's no particular spike of any singular disease you see appearing with these. Uh, so there's no exact disease-specific signal that we're seeing with the medication and the disease that points us to any particular worry at this point, other than screening our patients with a simple, how are you doing? You know, any infections recently, any lingering cough, any un- unusual problems that are going on. And if somebody's sick, you know, I've had people come in with an upper respiratory tract infection, we'll hold that dose for a, you know, a week and bring them back in once they're feeling well. Why push the issue? Uh, we've seen that withdrawal data going a year out on therapy. Uh, so we wanna be cautioned, especially people that have chronic infections or recurrent infections, uh, as I would with any systemic medication if they had psoriasis. There's this interesting warning if you look at the package insert about risk of particular infections, not because that these are problems that have shown up in the clinical trials, but because of the mechanisms. The FDA, we're gonna see more and more of this in our package inserts with theoretical concerns based on mechanisms, rather than actual numbers appearing in the data. And this is one from the mechanism. Uh, people who are genetically deficient in 12 and 23, not controlled with a dose of medication, not You know, we're not even suppressing these patients. These are people genetically deficient. And there's a small population in these people in the world. They have recurring infections. There's probably a couple hundred of them total in the world that are known at this point in time. They're not the average person that's going in. There's no genetic test. You're gonna go screening all of your patients for it. Think of it as an exceedingly uncommon genetic deficiency. But in people deficient with that, they are known to be more prone to mycobacteria, salmonella, and BCG vaccinations. Uh, so there's a warning about this. It's not known whether this will occur with treatment with Stellara no recurring problem that's been seen, but a theoretical risk. So if somebody walks in and says, hey, I am IL 12 or 23 deficient, you might wanna think twice. Odds are you're not gonna see that patient, but it's worth at least having the discussion as we go along here. We certainly recommend screening with all of our systemic therapies with TB. That's something I screen on all of my patients with psoriasis, regardless of medication they're going into. Not even psoriasis patients, anybody going on a systemic medication, regardless, I wanna know if they have TB. I can't think of any situation that I wouldn't want to know if they had TB they should be treated for it anyway. It's a useful piece at this point, so I don't get too excited about these. Um, And as we saw in the clinical trials, there were no cases, and they even allow people with latent TB that were treated appropriately into the clinical trial. So a warning, absolutely. Malignancies. We know there's always a potential for malignancy with any immunosuppressant. Um, they were seen in the clinical trials, but in relatively low numbers, as we saw from the data previously. So we take into consideration anybody's had a malignancy, a serious metastatic malignancy of any kind. I'm not gonna put them on pretty much of any of the systemic therapies at this point, and still are included in that. There's recently been a bit of a label change about hypersensitivity reactions that you may see a little update on that. Um, there have been some cases of angioedema and a case of, a case of anaphylaxis at the point uh, that have been reported in the uh, open use of the medication outside of the clinical trials. There were none in the trials. Uh, It's something to be aware of. These have occurred anywhere from minutes to days after the fact. So I simply tell my patients, if you start to see any facial swelling, throat swelling, you feel funny, you feel faint, stop, let us know right away or seek medical help. Uh, Not common, but at least as a potential and should be aware of. The one case that I mentioned earlier, this RPLS, reversible posterior leukoencephalopathy syndrome One case has been reported. Uh, This is typically a disease that are seen either with eclampsia during pregnancy, as well as alcoholics and uncontrolled hypertensive patients. You know, the hypertensive uh, urgency they have, uh, these cases that occur. Uh, Did occur in one patient during the clinical trial. They present with headache, seizure, confusion, and visual disturbances. Um, not in this case, but in cases there have been fatal outcomes with that. So if somebody presents with unusual confusion, seizure, headache, it's certainly something to be aware of, and I would think that would get your attention. Um, There's some other confounding factors with this uh, case that occurred, uh, but it's at least to be aware of as we go along, in case anybody were to ever present with symptoms like that. Immunizations, I always try to immunize patients up to date with their flu vaccine, uh, pneumovax, that sort of thing, before we start therapy. We don't want people giving any live vaccines while they're on any of our biologics, just including STAR. as we go along. We want to use caution if people have been around, if somebody's been given a live vaccination of high risk and they're, say, a husband or a wife of your treated patient, to be aware of at least a theoretical risk of spread in those cases. There's not a lot of data on combination therapy. I could tell you it's being done. We don't have big series of patients on multiple combination therapies, including with light therapy. A mouse model of IL-12 and 23 deficiency again, deficiency of IL-12 and 23. Uh, They were more prone to skin cancers when treated with ultraviolet light. Uh, So we'll need to see what the long-term data looks like here with non-melanoma skin cancers appearing when people are on therapy and melanoma skin cancers for that rate. Uh, But so far, no signal of that that we're seeing. Uh, Theoretical risk of uh, immunotherapy for people that are undergoing uh, desensitization therapy for bee stings or snake bites, that sort of thing. Um, there's a theoretical model where, um, since those are based on a Th1 immune response, by suppressing this Th1 response, you may lose some of that efficacy of their anti-anaphylactic therapy. So, if somebody has a severe allergic reaction that requires regular therapy, there's a theoretical concern of losing some of that efficacy when they're doing that. So, we don't recommend it if somebody really needs those allergy shots. And these, we're not talking the regular uh, hay fever, ragweed, you know, pollen, those kind of therapies, but for severe anaphylactic type reactions, probably shouldn't go on anything that's gonna suppress that Th1 response in their body. Most common adverse events, as we talked about previously, nasopharyngitis, and you can see in the numbers here whether it's placebo, low dose, or high dose, very similar in nasopharyngitis at eight, seven, and 8% upper respiratory tract infections at 5, 4, and 5, headaches at 5, 5, and 3, and fatigue at 3, 3, 2. So even our most common events, not that distinguished from the placebo arm in these things, you know, just again reassuring. Do they occur? Absolutely, you're gonna see some of these things that occur, but thankfully not much that's jumping up that high off the page right now to really give us a whole lot of concern. So in summary to this point, we have our first aisle 12, aisle 23 agent from Senecor, Eustachinumab, Stelara, that's on the market for adult patients with moderate to severe psoriasis patients who are candidates for systemic therapy. 5%, 3% more body surface area. After those baseline starter doses at the baseline, four weeks in, then you're just gonna be doing it every 12 weeks when we look back to the data that the tr- most troublesome part of therapy is the time it takes to do therapy. This is limiting that time. Um, people have been very pleased with that, I think. Uh, and looking at the trials, We have efficacy more than 75, more than 70% of people hitting PASI 75 just three months in and certainly seeing that higher as they go six months and a year in on therapy. And 84% of those people who are re-randomized to go back Maintained clearance all the way out to 76 weeks as this data goes out to right now. So we're able to think of this as a long-term therapy with a pretty reasonable safety profile and still able to show you know, very nice clinical improvement for our patients. Uh, it's a very useful piece to have added to my armamentarium of therapies, I'm not calling them biologics, but rather therapeutic options for our psoriasis patients now in this current market takes us to the end at this point. Any questions, we'd be happy to take. We're going to remember to collect those evaluations at the end and pass them to the end of the table as you fill those out, and we'll open the floor. Any questions to this point that I can help answer? Thank you for for the talk. Um, Question about uh, testing for ANA, and if so, with uh, lupus, any contraindications? No, I do not test for ANA uh, ahead of time in my patients. Uh, I haven't seen any induction, and again, I haven't seen any uh, lupus-like reactions reported to this point either that I'm aware of in the literature to this point. Uh, It's not something I routinely screen for. Um, I try to avoid it unless I'm really looking for lupus in patients, regardless of the medication we're looking for. That's a test that I see too many people in my office that have been said, oh, I have lupus, well, what do you have? Oh, my doctor said I had this blood test that was positive. Do you have any symptoms? No, I mean, it just makes me crazy. It's a test that gets run far too often, in my opinion, and just asks for trouble. Thanks. In the back, that's you.
2: (laughs) What would be baseline lab work and then annual lab work that you would get for that, let's say, jewelry maker?
1: Sure. In in my opinion on this, again, this is my opinion on screening for these things based on the information available from the American Academy of Dermatology. I screen my patients with a complete blood count and a complete metabolic panel. We're gonna screen them for TB. Uh, I do often check HIV patients, remembering that HIV is a common cause for flared psoriasis that you can't control. I've picked up a half a dozen HIV patients in the last year, or last five years or so. Um, and I am not in a hotbed of HIV, and none of the people or anybody I would have ever expected. So the CBC, CMP, TB, and I check a hepatitis panel. Again, no particular relation to the medication, but that's my screening panel across the board, whether they're going on to methotrexate, cyclosporin, Enbrel, Humerus, stellara, et cetera, uh, where we're going with that. I basically do the same panel across the board with those.
2: And annually, are you rep- and then once a year?
1: And I do, do it, do? yeah, usually annually. You know, some people that opt for every six months to rescreen. I go a year, you know, looking at this is there's no pattern of end organ injury that defines something. You're usually gonna be symptomatic, you know, with something before you're gonna find it. So I try not to go looking for things that I don't have a problem to look for. So I do do it annually And that's, that's my take on this. As well as an annual TB test with that as well. Yes.
2: Uh, I just have a question about a patient. Um... He, about a 40-year-old male, average height, weight, otherwise healthy, no history of arthritis or anything like that in the past. He um, Severe psoriasis, failed on topicals, systemics, phototherapy, um, failed on two different biologics over a period of years, like six, seven, eight years. And so recently we put him on Stelara, and so he got his first dose. He came back a month later. And he said after like two or three weeks, he was having like severe, severe, severe joint pain, like to the point where he was like limping into the office and he was, to sit down, he was, he had to like brace himself to sit down. He said he couldn't even really hold a pin. So he got a second dose. He was really insistent on keeping, like to try it. But I was just wondering if you've heard of that or seen any of that, what would you do? And.
1: I think that's actually worthwhile as a reportable thing. Um, there's not much of flare. There's actually clinical trials ongoing for psoriatic arthritis. Um, I thankfully have not had a problem. I have not heard of any of my colleagues having a problem with that. Uh, so that's actually a useful tidbit for me to this point as well. And uh, you know, certainly somebody I'd probably try to transition back away at that point if you're you know if you can think you can relate to that point. Um, I can say at this point, I haven't seen a lot of it. I haven't seen a lot of reports of it, and uh, I thankfully haven't had it happen in any of my patients. It's an unfortunate circumstance, especially for somebody who needed another therapeutic option like we often see in our, pa- our severe psoriatic patients that have burned through every medicine. It just You wonder what disease they really have because they don't like our psoriasis medicine sometimes. They have some other disease that sure looks like psoriasis, but it doesn't act like it. Good. Other questions? Well, hopefully the lunch was good. Hopefully the remainder of the conference for the afternoon is good. I appreciate your attention, and hopefully we got something worthwhile out of this discussion today. And if anybody has any questions they wanted to ask me at the end, certainly I'd be happy to discuss on the side. Please don't forget to turn in the surveys, and if you could pass the keypads down as well, it would be appreciated by the staff. Thank you very much.